might find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you. I'm going to carry on through our, our series this morning. How's your hearing? I said, how's your hearing? <laughs> the correct answer is, of course, pardon. That's what you're supposed to say. But it's more of a serious question, though, isn't it? How you hear, how you listen, can actually determine your eternal destiny, if you think about it. In that sense, the stakes could not be higher. Because actually, what we listen to really matters. Jesus, in the Gospels, talks lots about hearing and listening. Way more than you might think at first. 78 times he talks about hearing, 15 times he talks about listening. In fact, in just a few verses time, God the Father will speak from heaven and say this. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Now think about that for a second. He could have said, this is my beloved son, obey him. He could have said, this is my beloved son, trust him. He could have said, this is my beloved son, love him. Now, all those things would be legitimate things to say, wouldn't they? But he says, listen to him. It matters how you hear. It matters how you listen. It was true then, and it's true now. And we need to ask ourselves the question, are we listening to Jesus? Are we listening to what he's telling us through his word, by his spirit? Because if not, actually we could be putting ourselves in mortal danger. The problem is, as we'll see, that naturally we're willfully deaf. We stick our fingers in our ears. We put on the headphones, or put in the headphones, I think they do more these days, isn't it? The headphones of the world. The voices around us drown out what God is saying. We're functionally, functionally deaf to what God has to say to us. And if you think I'm just talking about non-believers here, actually even as Christians we can be hard of hearing, can't we? We cannot listen to Jesus in the way that we should. But there is hope. Jesus in our passage today meets some deaf people. But unlike the doctors or the teachers back then, actually Jesus can do something about it. And so our first point of three this morning... The physically deaf restored. Here in this first section from verses 31 to 37, uh, Jesus is in Gentile country. Jesus has been doing a tour of non-Jewish territories north of Galilee. And here he's still in Gentile country. These are areas where Jews are there, but they're in the minority. And he travels down from Tyre in the north, where he was last time, down through Sidon, which is a bit lower, and then into the Decapolis. The Decapolis was a mainly Greek-speaking area with ten larger towns or city, hence Decapolis, uh, uh, ten cities in Greek. This is also the place where in Mark's Gospel, Jesus cast the demon out of uh, a man where the demon said his name was Legion, and he cast them into a herd of pigs, again reminding us this is Gentile country. It's that kind of a place. We're not told which of the ten cities he's in, and only Mark's Gospel records this event. We've not got any other info on this. And Jesus is brought to a man who cannot hear and is barely able to speak. 
What's likely in mind there with the, the speaking thing is the way often some people who are hearing impaired are able to communicate verbally in some fashion, but not always in a way that's intelligible to everyone. The word's only used one other time in the Bible, uh, in the Greek translation of Isaiah 35, where it says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap for it like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Do you see here the mute, that same word, will speak. The deaf will hear when God comes to save. And that's exactly what happens here. Jesus takes aside this man, presumably a Gentile, he takes him away from the crowd. And that's normally a clue that Jesus is wanting to teach his disciples something. He's sort of getting them in a smaller group. He does four things. He puts his fingers in the man's ears. He touches the man's tongue after spitting. He looks up to heaven and then he says, be opened in Aramaic. And amazingly, the man suddenly is able to hear and to speak properly. Instantaneously, he's healed. His ears start to work and his speech becomes normal and intelligible. Jesus can do exactly what we've been hearing in Isaiah 35. He can open the ears of the deaf. He can open the mouth of the mute. And I don't know about you, but it, it does seem a little bit weird, the way that he goes about it, doesn't it? The whole spitting and putting fingers in. and it seems a bit convoluted. I mean, in the last passage, he just spoke the word to the woman whose daughter was ill, and she was healed. That was it. All he did was speak a word. Why didn't Jesus just keep it this simple this time? Well, it's a two-part answer, really. The first part is that most of this, if you think about it, is very visual, isn't it? It's very hands-on. The deaf man, if Jesus had spoken, the deaf man wouldn't have been able to hear him at first, would he? But the deaf man here would be in no doubt what Jesus was doing as Jesus put his fingers in his ears, as he touched his tongue. He would know what Jesus was doing. So words alone wouldn't have helped the guy understand what was going on, but Jesus actually helps him understand what he's doing. The second part of the answer from Mark's perspective is that the way that this happens links it to the end of the passage and also to next week's passage uh, where there'll be a similar hearing miracle. In both of them, he'll spit and do it in two separate parts. But instead of opening ears there, he will open eyes. But if Jesus is doing this as a lesson for the disciples, what is the lesson? What is Jesus trying to show them? Well, Jesus can open ears. Spiritual deafness is all around them. When it comes to people around him, Jesus may as well be speaking a foreign language, if you think about it. Even his own disciples didn't understand it. But Jesus, we see here, can do a miracle. He can make them understand. He can supernaturally open their spiritual ears so that they can hear. And when the time is right, when they really understand who he is and why he came, Jesus will open their mouths as well to speak the truth of the gospel. But here, if you notice, the man jumps the gun, doesn't he? He goes a bit quicker than he was expecting. So in verse 36, it says, And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. 
Having given the man the ability to speak, the man now can't seem to shut up. I know with our kids, they say, you know, you spend the first uh, few, uh, couple of years sort of teaching them to walk and talk, and then the rest of their lives teaching them to sit down and shut up. <laughs> but here Jesus is actually telling them to be quiet, but this man just can't help but speak. Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. Jesus knows this man doesn't really understand why he's come. He's definitely never heard him preach. But the more he tells him not to, the more they shout it from the rooftops. I think there's a bit of a clue here that whilst Jesus has opened his physical ears, the spiritual ears are not quite open yet. Because Jesus is the Lord, the Messiah, God in the flesh. They're supposed to not just hear what Jesus says, but do what Jesus says. That's what real spiritual hearing looks like, doesn't it? It it changes us, it changes our ways. Having said that, they've grasped something, haven't they? Have a look at verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. He's done all things well. There's several links back there with Genesis 1 where God looked and saw that what he had made was very good. Literally the word there is exceedingly good, but I always think that would make him sound a bit like Mr. Kipling. You know, makes exceedingly good worlds. Um, But he's doing things like God. He's doing things that God does. He's doing things only God can do. And they can't help but speak. Isn't it funny though that Jesus tells them to be quiet? And all they want to do is go about proclaiming Jesus. And then he tells us to go about proclaiming Jesus. And all we want to do is keep quiet. Maybe our spiritual hearing is not as good as we sometimes think. But with all this proclaiming going on, with all these people hearing about Jesus, a crowd begins to gather. A huge group of 4,000 plus people gather to hear the Lord Jesus. And that brings us to our second point. The rest of the family fed from verses 1 to 9. Last week, Richard helpfully showed us the story of the Gentile woman who did seem to hear what Jesus was saying. While the disciples still seem baffled about Jesus' parable language, the woman surprisingly understands and actually responds in kind. She joins in with his parable language. Mark seven twenty-eight. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs, pet dogs under the table, Eat the children's crumbs, she says. Jesus talks about bread and she gets that he's talking about something spiritual. But now it's time for the little dogs, the the pet dogs, to get their meal. It's going to be more than a few crumbs under the table as Jesus feeds them. In fact, they will get pretty much what the children got in chapter 6 when Jesus fed 5,000 Jews. Here in the Decapolis, he feeds 4,000 Gentiles. Now, a lot of people have noted that the two incidents seem kind of similar. So much so that some say what we really have is two sort of variant versions of the same account. So, you know, that some people thought there were this many people, some people thought that. So they just sort of put them both in. Except it's not, is it? And the similarity is exactly the point. We know it's not the same event because Jesus talks about both these events in just a a, a chapter or so time. He talks about the different number of baskets that they got. So obviously they were aware there were two different incidences. But the similarity is there to show that Jesus is doing here for the Gentiles what he did for the Jews. 
There aren't as many details here as in chapter 6, because Mark's already made the point about Jesus feeding his people, like God fed the people through Moses in the wilderness. The difference here is that God God is feeding those who are not originally his special people, who do not share that heritage back to the Exodus at the moment. What he's doing here is treating Jew and Gentile alike. He's showing them no partiality. He's showing compassion to both. Because in the end, all peoples belong to God, don't they? And his disciples are going to have to learn this, because they're going to be sent to all peoples. He's going to send them out to the nations. But the disciples don't get it. They don't even understand. They don't even seem to remember what happened at the feeding of the 5,000. So when Jesus talks about it, verse 4, they answered, his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It's as though chapter 6 hasn't happened. It's as though they haven't been through it. They're baffled about how they're going to get enough food. And again, people say, oh, well, it shows us that the feeding of the 5,000 didn't happen. wasn't a separate event. How could they possibly forget in just a, a few weeks' time? Except again, that's exactly the point. If you were with us for the first part of the Exodus series, you might remember how many times the Israelites cried out to Moses because they thought God wasn't going to provide for them. Chapter 15 of Exodus, what shall we drink? We'll die of thirst. Chapter 16 of Exodus, the next one, what shall we eat? We'll die of hunger. Chapter 17, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Again, you'd be left thinking, were they not there in the previous chapter? Were they not understanding? It's like they don't remember what's just happened. And the disciples here have the same problem as the Israelites in the wilderness. And for the Israelites, it proved deadly. They died in the wilderness. And it would seem the disciples have the same spiritual life-threatening condition. So what is it going to take for them to see? What is it going to take for them to understand what Jesus is going on about? But Jesus is kind to them. He talks to them. He gives them a repeat, a reminder of what went on before. But this time he provides not just for the Jews but for the Gentiles, as though the Exodus will somehow be shared with all the nations, somehow. So in these chapters, we see the Gentiles are are getting it. The Jews, not so much. The pet part of the family are taking what Jesus offers. The children, at this point, are not. And if you think about it for us this morning, that's a great benefit to us. I imagine most of us here are not of Jewish descent, But that does not make us second-class Christians. We are part of the family too. You might have been thinking with the way that Jesus referred to us last week, that we'd be on scraps, that we'd just be getting the crumbs. But Jesus provides for us on equal terms. We may not be natural branches on the tree, as Paul puts it in Romans 11, but we have been grafted in. We're just as much part of the tree, just as much part of the family... There's anybody else. Paul says this when writing to the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians 2. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile believers, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're now fellow citizens, members of the household, 
part of the family of God because of Christ. And Jesus provided forgiveness for all by his death on the cross. And he continues to provide daily for our needs. But many of the Jews in Jesus' day didn't want to be part of a family like that. A family with sinners and foreigners and undesirables. A family with Jesus at the head of it. And so our last point, the spiritually deaf, rejected. Let me just read to you these verses uh, from chapter 8, verses 10 to 13. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into his boat again, and went to the other side. Jesus here takes a trip to Dalmanutha. Nobody knows exactly where that was, but it's probably in the region of another place called Magadan, which is supposedly where Mary Magdalene uh, was from. And that's where Jesus goes in Matthew's Gospel at this point, which is why we think they're, they're together. But this would put him back in Jewish territory. He's moved away now from the, the Gentiles, and he's talking to the Jews. And that would fit, wouldn't it? The first people who seek to come to him are the Pharisees. They come and they meet him, but they don't bring someone in need, like they did in the Decapolis. They don't come to listen, like they did with the feeding of the 4,000. Instead, they come to argue and to test him. Again, we have the echoes of the Israelites in the wilderness putting God to the test. What they want here is a sign from heaven. Now, of course, Jesus has been doing tons of signs. We've just read some of the things that Jesus has been doing. The problem is that they've been attributing these sort of things to the power of the devil, not to the power of God. So they might be sort of asking, show us a heavenly sign, something unambiguously godlike. Well, you'll notice all the way through the Gospels that Jesus does his miracles to help people. They're not party tricks, they're missions of mercy. Which, if you think about it, is incredibly godlike, isn't it? He's not just doing it for show, he's doing it to help people. They want miracles of marvel, but Jesus performs miracles of mercy. But the reason they're really asking him, though, is that they want to test him. Like the Israelites did in the wilderness. This was not a game the Israelites were to play. God was very stern with them. Jesus in Matthew's Gospel quotes from that era in Matthew 4. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's God's attitude to what they're doing. So Jesus here signs, tells them no, and leaves. Now again, that might seem a little bit odd. Seemingly, he's just got there. I mean, could you imagine somebody travelling for miles? Say, for example, if this weekend you, know, you travelled for miles for a wedding, or you travelled from uh, another country over. You got to the door, you, you, the, you ring the doorbell, answer the door, and you say, ah, oh, great to see you, must be going. And off you go. It just wouldn't happen, would it? But that's the way that it seems here. It, it may be that he stayed longer. But the way that Mark puts it, it's there, one conversation, and then back in the boat to the other side of the lake. So what's going on? Why is this happening? Well, the mention of heaven 
And the mention of the Psy are inviting us to read this alongside the story that we started with, the deaf man. There, Jesus looked to heaven and sighed. Remember, those are two of the sort of strange details that we noticed. The repetition encourages us to read them together. You see, here we don't have people who are physically deaf, though. We have people who are spiritually deaf. They cannot hear what Jesus is saying. They do not understand who he is or what he's come to do. And instead of coming in faith to him for what they need, they're coming to him disbelievingly, trying to disprove him. They don't want anything from Jesus other than confirming their own disbelief. And so Jesus, in response, doesn't give them anything. Because they they disbelieve and put him to the test. He gives them nothing and takes away even what they have. He gets back in the boat and heads to the other side of the lake. Jesus is judicially withdrawing himself from the Pharisees, pulling himself away. And this is exactly what Jesus said would be the case back in chapter 4. Think about this in terms of spiritual deafness, the deafness we've been talking about. Mark 4, 24 and 25. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, if you're not really listening to me, says Jesus, then even what you have will be taken away. But if you listen with open ears, you'll be given more. You'll grow. You see, the Pharisees here were not listening. So even what they have is withdrawn. Jesus leaves and goes to the other side of the lake. The Gentiles, though, were listening, were seeking to understand, like the woman from last week. And they were given more. And you might be thinking, well, that's all right for them. What about us? How does that work for us? Well, it all comes back to the question we started with. How's your hearing? Are you listening to Jesus? Really listening? Are we listening in faith to be taught? Or in order to confirm our own pre-made opinions? That goes for us whether we're Christians or not this morning. It's not unusual to find Christians who judge what they hear by their pre-existing opinions, rather than what the Bible actually says. There's a danger that we stop really listening to Jesus, and instead look to Jesus to just affirm what we already think. But we should be prepared to be challenged by Jesus. Are we prepared to listen to his word and change our minds about some things? Or do we just want to hear a medley of what we already think? If we do that, scripture begins to lose its sharp edge, doesn't it? It's blunted by long-formed opinions where the word can no longer get through. Now, don't hear me wrong. We don't want to be those who are tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine. That's not healthy either. But what we don't want is a church where we become an echo chamber of our own views, where we can no longer be challenged by what scripture actually says rather than just what we think. You see, the Pharisees had their views, didn't they? But they put them above what Scripture actually said. And when the Messiah came, he didn't quite fit into their views of what they decided the Bible said. And so they wouldn't listen to him. 
Well, let's not make the same mistake. Let me give you a test to see if this is where we're going. When was the last time scripture changed your mind on something? When was the last time you read something in the Bible and thought, you know, I used to think this, but actually this says something else. Has it ever done that to you? Or do you just read it to affirm what you already think? And if there's a difference with what you think, well, you just ignore it or try and make it say something else. Something else that happens to agree with what you think. It could be, though, that you're more like the Pharisees here in that Jesus makes no sense to you at all this morning. Your pre-made opinions are that Jesus claims about himself simply aren't true. Well, in one sense, it's right to have a healthy dose of scepticism, isn't it? The Bible has no qualms with us asking questions and challenging things. There's a lot of nonsense out there, and actually we do need to be careful about what we believe. Jesus wants to make us godly, not vulnerable. But on the other hand, if we approach the subject with closed minds, like the Pharisees, if we insist that God danced to our tune, that he provides the evidence that we demand then we shouldn't be surprised if we get nothing. Not because he isn't there, but because he's not a performing bear. He doesn't do party tricks to gain followers. God doesn't need us to follow him. This is not Peter Pan where, you know, people say they don't believe in fairies, they die out. God is not threatened by this. God graciously offers us eternal life, forgiveness of our sin, a living relationship with him. But if we're more interested in sounding clever or making him jump through hoops, then he'll just leave us to it. But it may be that if you just start listening to Jesus, rather than trying to take him apart, that you might just find that that little bit of faith is added to and grows and increases. Just try it. So this morning, whether you're a believer or not, how is your hearing? Pardon? That's the right answer. Let's pray that God would open our ears, that he would allow us to hear him clearly and listen truly to what Jesus has said. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he speaks powerfully. Father, thank you that he challenges us. And Father, pray that you'd help us to be challenged afresh by what the Lord Jesus says. Father, help us not to be those who are so set in our opinions that we no longer hear scripture. But Father, help us to be cut to the heart by what we read and submit our thoughts and opinions to what Jesus has said, what the scriptures say, rather than just what we uh, have believed a long time. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.